Good morning. Yeah, I feel the love. I feel it. Excuse me. Um, so I had a sermon for this morning. Really good one. Honest, I swear. You can, you can Facebook that. My pastor had a really good sermon for this morning. Um, instead, I jotted down a bunch of notes. I was jet lagged the other night, uh, two nights ago, and laying in bed and just felt like going a different direction. Uh, so, none of this is going to make sense. It's like a, a bunch of, like a half hour worth of rants, um, incoherent, and if you can just hang with me till the end, hopefully there's a point. Uh, and if I step on your toes, we have uh, nine elders, and uh, they're, you can find them, um, honestly, they're available, and you can stick around for Redux and, and follow up with something. I don't mean to step on your toes, but this is just kind of more off-the-cuff, half-baked thoughts than a sermon, and so hopefully you guys are okay with that. I just, what I want to do this morning is kind of share things I struggle with, things I struggle with, Um, you know, kind of big and small, but we'll just dive in. The first thing I struggle with is uh, church and culture. It's my, it's my business. Like, I mean, sometimes I hang out with guys, and they're like, man, do you ever, like, leave church behind? You're always talking about church, and it's like, no, I don't. It's like, if I had a normal, like a job, non-church job, and then like I was a volunteer in the church, like it would be, this time would be spent talking about church, and this time would be, you know, doing whatever. But since I work at the church, it's like, this time is church, and then like my evening time when I'm hanging out with people is church, and it's just all church, um, which makes me really boring. I started watching football again so that I could talk to you guys about, you know, I'm just kidding. I started watching it again because I was too tired to play with my kids. The... Uh, but what I struggle with church in America about is, is church and culture is that, that culture always has a tendency to suck church into it rather than the other way around. Uh, the word for that is syncretism. And in the Old Testament, God always talks about, you know, keeping in some sense what I'm passing on to you is the faith, keeping that pure and that it's not going to blend and become some hybrid with what, what, what else is out there. Um, and that's syncretism. So I, I kind of talked to a missionary friend of mine that came back from Jordan a number of years ago. And I said, man, it's, he was talking to me about that. Just how the church over there, there's, you know, syncretism. It just, it, it sucks in different elements of culture. And, and I asked him, I said, so what do we do? Like, how do we in America, like, suck aspects of culture into it? And we don't realize it. And he says, we absolutely devalue scripture and, and we bring our consumeristic lenses to everything. He goes, that's kind of how we do it. And I, I see that everywhere. Um, and so that, that bothers me. I was, I was in Europe and, and uh, you know, a lot of us were kind of walking through the Reformation. And it's really interesting. In 1520, before Martin Luther was excommunicated by the church, part of what got him excommunicated is he wrote a real scathing little booklet called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. You had a Renaissance pope uh, who is in the, in the middle of building St. Peter's Cathedral. And the whole idea there is, is bigger and better and, and much more. I mean, there was very little of religion in it. It was a lot more just political, um, cultural, like kingish, secularish, and, and Martin Luther is seeing this, and he's, he's saying the church has been hijacked, it's been, 
It's been caught up in something other than what it was supposed to be. It's, it's the Babylonian captivity of the church, the secular kind of captivity of the church. And I think that's a great phrase for how the church always tends to get sucked up into culture and become less than what it was supposed to be or less pure in some sense than what it was supposed to be. C.S. Lewis uh, in the screw tape letters. Now, if you don't know the screw tape letters, it's kind of written from a uh, like from a devil perspective, like these these tempting demons, these these devils that are trying to like make people fall off their way. And C.S. Lewis writes this wonderful thing from their perspective, and it helps elicit all these things that other, otherwise we wouldn't see. I mean, just kind of the interesting perspective. And so these two are talking, and he's saying, "Look, if you can't cure." somebody of church going, the next best thing, if you can't cure them of church going, is to send them all around town to every church until they become a connoisseur of churches. And once they become a connoisseur of churches, they then become a critic or a cynic. And so, the, you know, the demons are kind of saying, this is the strategy, turn them into consumers. And here's kind of how it looks in America. You have the church and you have the middle here of leadership and it's seen kind of as the goal that they're going to deliver goods that that the consumer wants and this is kind of the the game that's being played and and it's very passive on the outside and very active on the inside and it and it makes us look like I've heard the analogy that it's a lot like football where you have 22 people on the field desperately in need of rest and you have 60,000 in the stands desperately in need of exercise. It, and it becomes very passive over here and very active over here, and it's consumeristic, and, it's, and we're supposed to, in some sense, give what the desire is. And if we change that, and we see it much more where there's not this center, but it's kind of a lot more, you know, you've got lay leaders, and you've got all, there's just a lot of people involved and they're empowering and equipping people here to go out and make a difference in the kingdom of God. So it's a distributor kind of a picture that the whole goal here is, is I'm coming to church and getting tooled up or fueled up or encouraged or loved on or finding others that are going to help me go out and do what I've been created to do, what I've been called to do. And to do that, how, how, I mean, how would you create this kind of culture? You would have to go against culture. You'd have to become counter-cultural. Does that make sense? We'd have to come into church and be counter-cultural and say we're not going to bring that kind of consumerism to church. But to do that is to do the opposite of what a consumer culture wants. Which really becomes tricky, doesn't it? Because I'll have to, or, or pastors in some sense then, would have to offend you or not give you what you want or disappoint you in order to try and, and maybe gain enough leverage to, to help shape the culture so that it looks more like what God wanted it to look like than what we kind of make it. And, and that's, I struggle with that. What do you do with that? I mean, how, how do you speak truth to try and get people to the point to where they want to hear truth. You know, chicken and the egg. And, uh, and we don't real. I, mean, I, I was in Europe and it was amazing. I couldn't find any, hardly anything to buy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm traveling through Europe and, and, and there wasn't anything I really wanted to buy, souvenirs or stuff for myself. And then I come home and I take my third daughter 
Sarah to Costco, and I, I walked in Costco, and I didn't get, I, you know how you do a U? I got to the back where the food is, and there was a hundred things that I absolutely couldn't live without. I mean, absolutely. And I almost bought this uh, KitchenAid, which, uh, which doesn't sound crazy, um, but it is because we already have a KitchenAid. But this one was black, and it reminded me of um, the way all the appliances were before I got married. And, and I just, it looked so cool. And I literally like stared at this KitchenAid and I was like, I really want that. I have a KitchenAid already, right? But we're, we're just so programmed to consume. And I just, I struggle with that. I don't know where to go with that. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to, in my own life, eradicate that let alone try and be a part of creating a culture that, that lives so differently than that. Um, my wife and I were talking about, hey, let's not take our kids to any stores during December. Like, no stores but the kilns, bookshop. Because it's like, I, I want them to be excited come Christmas Day with whatever the heck they get instead of, you know, feeling let down because they've just been bombarded with all the stuff that's out there. I don't know what to do with that. I struggle. I struggle with Calvinism. Not with the doctrines of Calvin. And half of you don't know what the heck I'm talking about. That's okay. It's for the other half. I I struggle with Calvinism. (laughs) Um, I interpret the doctrines of grace the way Calvin interprets the doctrines of of grace. I I really do. I I read scripture and, and... to my best guess, nothing's ever perfect, formulaic, whatever, but I kind of see it the way Calvin saw it. What I can't stand, though, and I really have a hard time with this, it has become the new cool thing for younger pastors in America to become staunch Calvinists and to wear that, like, as a flat, to go everywhere and to just be these rock-solid Calvinists in your face, define ourselves that way, and... And I just can't, I just, I just don't get that. I don't know where to go with that. Uh, in Geneva, Calvin pretty much had a pseudo-theocracy. He was complicit in the death sentence being issued against Anabaptists, which, I mean, the, the Catholics burned people, the, the Protestants drowned people. Um, but, but there's just a lot of, of a, a guy, a normal guy like any of us, there's a lot in his life that you look at and say, man, for, you know, he had a lot of good stuff. He also had a lot of stuff that, that, that might not have been good. And so to take his name and to wear that and, and walk around triumphantly is just awkward to me. And yet, that's kind of the thing. If you read in the magazines, you, you know, podcasts or whatever, it's like that's the new cool and it's like I'm supposed to have an I Heart John Calvin shirt that I wear when I preach. And I, st- I struggle with that. I struggle with, Paul said uh, in Corinthians, you got this whole consumeristic church thing going on in, in Corinth and Paul comes in and says, really, people? Really, like, you're, you're, you're playing these games with Apollos and Paul and others and, and factions and who follows who, and man, that's not what I came to give you. I came to give you the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. And he just, he just is just baffled by it, and he says, look, you weren't baptized into Apollos, you weren't baptized into Paul, you weren't baptized in these things. There's one name that you were given to go by, and that's Jesus Christ, and and we're Christians. 
We're not Calvinists, we're not other. We define ourselves first, we ought to define ourselves first by, by the one who gives us the grace and who saved us. And when we talk about those other things, it ought to be with hashing out um, theological matters and concerns, but not our identity. And I, I, I don't know what to make of it and I struggle with it. I struggle, here, let me qualify this one. Um, I struggle with how the conservative church handles women. Now, we're a, we're a conservative church theologically. What that means is we, we believe the Bible, that Scripture is the authority, and we interpret it literally, and we are theologically conservative. But having said that, I've, I've been around a, a theologically conservative culture where women just are so unempowered. And I'm, I'm baffled by that. And we basically take two verses that Paul wrote and we parse the Greek and we, we run it through all our filters and we come out with a solution where, where women have no role for anything. And when I was in engineering, it was really interesting. You do these math equations to find out, say, the force on, a, on an I-beam and you go through 20 different things, calculations, to get the force on a beam. And if you come out with a, a negative number, Guess what? You know, that thousand pounds in that beam doesn't, it's not, it's not an absence of force, right? It's, it's a positive force. It's got to be a positive. You know, you did something wrong. And Jesus absolutely was unbelievably empowering towards women. Uh, he talked to a, a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day in the desert. He let a woman who had been bleeding touch him, both things that would have led to his impurity as a rabbi in that kind of ceremonial culture where it would have actually um, compromised his purity or holiness. Um, he, we, we read about Mary sitting at his feet, language that was reserved for disciples. Uh, he spoke like in the, in the broad sense of his disciples and included women. He he just was so affirmational and pro-woman that the woman that, of ill repute that comes at his feet and he's in like the, this teacher, this like well-to-do pastor guy's house and she comes in, cries at his feet and this guy's going, man, Jesus, you don't know what's going on. If you did, you'd know who was touching you. And Jesus basically says, um, joke's on you because the worst of woman is better than the best of man right now. And you just don't even see that because somehow you just culturally, you got it all backwards. And, and, um, and so I, I just look at Jesus and his life and it's just loving and gracious and caring and affirmational toward women. There's a woman that comes and pours perfume on his head. Jesus is in a room. Jesus knows he's gonna die. It's pretty hairy politically. Um, there's death threats. It's scary. They're kind of hiding from people. The disciples are probably a mixture of confusion and worried and afraid. I mean, you know, if you're in a room and you're paranoid and you're kind of back behind closed doors and you're just lost and you're confused, and that's where the guys are. That's what they're thinking through. And this woman comes up and dumps a year's worth of perfume on Jesus' head. And Jesus says this. He says, whenever you write about me, from here on out, whenever you tell my story, you're also going to include this woman's story. It's amazing. Have you ever grappled with that? 
he, he links, hinges her story to his story. Um, unbelievable. It's a, it's a hero. That's something to, that we can look to and get excited about that kind of faith, that kind of devotion, and we can hold that up. And what kind of really led me on this thought, you know, I brought it up with the elders about six months ago, and I'm just like, guys, I'm just wrestling. We're not, we're not loving women. I mean, the nitpicking verses aside, just the bottom line equation, when we do the math, instead of coming out with an equation that's positive, it's negative, and that, that just can't be. How, I don't know how, how to deal with this. I'm looking for heroes for my daughters. I've got four of them, right? So, I mean, it's all I got. I got four daughters, and I'm like, okay, I want them to have heroes because you, you become what you behold. And who we choose to put in front of our kids for them to idolize or, or get excited about other than Justin Bieber, you know, it, that, that's huge, and so I went looking for, for women heroes for my kids. And this is what led me to this whole thought process. And, and I came up with it in the, in the, man, in the Catholic world, you have all these women saints. In the, in the conservative Protestant world, you have Elizabeth Elliot and Amy Carmichael. That's it. One went and became a missionary and died overseas. The other one went and became a missionary and her husband died. Okay, so this is what I know about women in the conservative church. If you go overseas and somebody dies, then you can be a hero. I mean, that's, that's the formula. You know, you got to go overseas and somebody's got to die. And then, then you can be um, somebody we can talk about. You guys aren't laughing. It's, it's funky, isn't it? I want to tell my daughters that they can change the world, that God made them unique and specific and he gifted them and he cares about them and that they can just sell out to God because God can use them. I mean, in the hall of, of fame, of faith, Hebrews 11, if you've ever read it, it's, it's the listing of all these people. Rahab the prostitute is an example of faith. You know, I mean, we've got to be able to find people and, and put them up. And we've got to be able to tell our kids that there are, are people that God has used. People that God wants to use. And, and, and you just sell out, do what God wants, and he will use you. Whether it's staying at home as a mom, whether it's adopting a kid, whether it's traveling the world, whether it's your business gifts, your entrepreneurial gifts, your leadership gifts, your gifts of mercy, whether you're an educator or a teacher, it doesn't matter how God created you, he can use you to change the world. He can use you to impact his kingdom. He can use your life such that in the stories of the faith, you'll be written about. I struggle, I struggle with it. Do you know that uh, Muhammad Yunus, Muhammad Yunus is the guy that, that basically, basically invented uh, microfinance? Are you familiar with microfinance at all in the third world? It's revolutionary, absolutely revolutionary. The idea is in the third world, you can't get out of debt. Why? Because you can't secure a loan to start any kind of a business or anything. You can't secure a loan. Why? Because you're a risk. 
You don't have any land to put against it for collateral. You don't have anything that would make the banker say, um, if you default on your loan, I can still get my money back. You're a risk. So Muhammad Yunus basically changed all this with microfinance. He said, we're going to get groups of people together into these networks, and we're going to loan to the network so that there's peer pressure for them to all um, pay back the loans. And if you're going to basically be networked with a group of people, you're going to pick your group carefully, aren't you? And so there's a little bit of self-selection going on and you pick your group and then you get a small loan and those people are able to start businesses. They pay back the loan and then they're able to get more money and they can work themselves out of poverty instead of just getting handouts. It's absolutely revolutionary in the world of development. It's unbelievable. Um, you can go to kiva.org and make a loan to somebody in the third world. And then I, I get emailed once a month on the repayment to the loan of 25 bucks to, that I made to this woman in Cambodia. It's, it's crazy. Um, Microfinance. Do you know that the repayment on those loans is close to 100%? Statistically, it's in the high 90s. It's amazing. And, and here's what's even more amazing. Do you know that 97% of those loans are given to women? 97% of microfinance loans are given to women. I, I feel like the church needs to really work hard to not box women into a corner, but to just grab them and to get excited about them and to affirm them and to encourage them and to love on them and to tell them how amazing they can be out there for God if they have faith big enough. We need 97% of the women to go fix what 97% of the guys do to mess this world up. All right, so I have a little preaching in there, but I struggled with something. It's the common theme. There's something in there I struggle with. Um, my views are those of myself. I, you know, I struggle with church deficiencies, with the history of the church, with things that have happened in the name of the church or in the name of Christ that, that some sense we get linked to. And it's hard to like separate from that. The church and the Jews, it's an amazing thing. If you go to Wittenberg, which is where the Reformation started, St. Mary's there, built in the late 1300s, about 50 feet up on the corner of the building, there's this etched in, chipped in stone relief of a pig with Jews suckling underneath it and pooping out the Torah. Okay? The, the mid-1300s, the Black Plague, Germans used that as an excuse, and it's not particular to Germans, man, it was all of Europe, but used the plague as an excuse to blame the Jews, to kick them out, to kill them, to take their property. Uh, this, this, this church was built, you know, after that period of time. It later became, it's not a Catholic church anymore, during the Reformation, it became a Protestant church, it was Luther's church. Um, the... The Nazis and Hitler weren't the first to mistreat or to kill the Jews. They're not the, they weren't the first. And for much of church, church history, not only was the church complicit in it, but was actually instigating it. The church in Rome instigated the, Roman, uh, the, the Jewish ghetto in Rome that existed for 400 years. I mean, so you have this history, and I just heard yesterday of another pastor I knew that, that had an affair. It's overwhelming to me how many pastors I know that have affairs. 
It just feels like a, a pandemic, and it's just like, um, can I trade teams? I'd like to start over. I, mean, I was in Atlanta a couple months ago, and I saw a BP gas station, and I kind of laughed, and I was like, I bet they wish they could change their sign, you know? Like, hey, we're Exxon. We're not BP. Like, and sometimes I, I man, how do I gain separation? And I don't, wanna, I don't want that history. I want a new team. And then you realize, but the words are Christ and church. And you can't get rid of those two words. So somehow you just got to say, man, they weren't perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. God's somehow got to be big enough for all this. And, and let's try and at least do the best we can to undo that. That's really what you come down to. Um, but I struggle with that history. Someone I know called me a man of the cloth recently. Don't ever do that. <laughs> I, I, I don't like the word pastor. Not because of what it stands for. Biblically, it stands for shepherd, which I, I'd prefer, well, it's weird in English, but at least the biblical connotation was a lot more roll up your sleeves and workish. I'm okay with that, but the word pastor in America is just the soft you're going to change diapers of, of 500 people for 20, 30 years and, and pat babies' heads and squeeze their cheeks. And it's really nice and it's really soft and, and you're a man of a cloth. And I, it's, it's not, that's not, it's not me. It's not what I'm here. Uh, there's a guy in seminary I know that was like that. He went to Alaska um, to, to be on a fishing boat one summer because you make a, a, a grip of money evidently doing that. Um, so he came back, and he was just bitter. And, and me and a couple of buddies were like, what gives? And so we were talking to him, and he'd gotten picked on by the, by the fishermen. You know, so he's on the fishing boat, and the Alaska fishermen really picked on him. And we we're like, well, what gives? And he just started telling us the whole story. And he says, no, I, I just don't get it. I, I made cookies for them, and I did their laundry. And, you know, and we're just like, whoa, like... And we just, we didn't laugh in front of him. We waited till we were, it was later. Um, and we just had this picture of him knitting like fishing caps for the fishermen. And, and the reality to me was, I just, I think if Jesus were to come to that fishing boat, he would love this guy and he would pat him on the head and he would squeeze him and he'd hug him and he'd tell him how much he loves him. And then he'd move on to that raw fisherman guy and say, hey, come with me. We got to go change the world. And it's not a put down to soft pastors at all. What I'm trying to say is those of you that are entrepreneurial, that are type A, that are, that are driven, that have high capacity, that are just, have a fire in your belly, that are zealots, and you wonder why you get pulled into church every week by your wife or by your husband or whatever, and you sit there and you go, well, why am I here? There's really nothing that's going on here. The, the, the vision is really low. Um, I, I think the church needs you. I think the church needs more people like you, and somehow we gotta find each other and we gotta say, man, um, God uses crazy people to do some crazy things and to change the perception uh, that sometimes happens out there of just this passive, soft kind of church. That's separated from the Jewish comment, by the way. I don't, I don't, I really, like I said, I'm, these are half-baked thoughts. It's what I'm struggling with. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm, I'm struggling with the passivity and the, the, the vibe of it and the unempowerment of it and that we have some of the most amazing gifted people that we just don't tap into. Um, 
Uh, there was a, a picture I saw on CNN this week. Veterans Day happened this week. By the way, do you guys know Veterans Day? Uh, the armistice in World War I was signed on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, uh, 1918. I know that because November 11th is my birthday. And uh, all throughout, like ninth grade to 11th grade, every time we had an English paper assignment in high school, I was in Virginia. We didn't get Veterans Day off. My kids this week, they got like Veterans Day and like another five days thrown in off. I don't know. <laughs> but I didn't get Veterans Day off. And so when I was in English class, we'd always get these paper assignments. And I would always write about why we should get Veterans Day off. And of course, my, my motive was different. But the Veterans Day, um, which in the 1950s was expanded to include all of all the veterans, you know, because after World War, World War II, it kind of brought all that in. But uh, there's this picture of these guys that had served in World War II, Yogi, Yogi Berra being one of them. And this was a whole article about how Major League Baseball players during World War II gladly left baseball behind and went and served in the war. 500 major leaguers and about 4,000 minor league baseball players went and served in the war. And I was reading that and I was thinking to myself, man, you know, sometimes in the church, we raise up baseball players when we should be raising up like warriors and entrepreneurs and leaders and zealots. You know, we raise up the soft when we ought to be firing people up with a sense of urgency for a calling that I guarantee you God's God would give to us if we just sat there and said we're willing to take it, accept it, run with it. Um, I struggle with Antioch. Um, I struggle thinking that we're doing too much sometimes. Uh, that's like one hour a week. The rest of it, I, I, the rest of the week, I struggle with thinking we're not doing enough. Um, and that's the curse of my personality. So if you get burned out, you raise your hand, let me know. Um, but I, I, there's this tension there. Are we doing enough when we're not are we, are we doing too much? Um, there's a tension with where do we go? How do we fight culture? The one that I, I struggle with the most is this, um, not wanting to be just about church growth. We, we absolutely are committed to truth and to trying to be healthy. And, and if people leave, we don't want that to be what makes our decisions for us. But it's always hard. It's always hard when people leave. And so I, I struggle with that. I, I really struggle when people have disagreements or frustrations and they never come talk to you directly. And of all the people that have left Antioch in four years, do you know that only two of them have ever come talk to me? We have a, a whole service, Redux, that, that happens after this service that's completely dedicated to dialogue and discussion. You know, if, if, if there's something going on, let's talk about it. I, uh, when we were planting Antioch, I'm a big fan of handling your business and just, if you've got a problem with someone, say it to them. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that. When we were planting Antioch, I had a church plant board, um, and there was a, basically at a meeting, they were kind of saying, what are some of the values you want for Antioch? And I said that we would handle conflict well. And a friend of mine, Rick McKinley, looked at me and he says, so you got a small group? And you got a, a couple going through divorce and you got some dude hooked on porn and, and you're going to tell them like the value is conflict resolution? And, and, and well, if you put it that way, no. You know, I, was, I didn't know what to say. But, I, you know, coming back to it, I really realized that as an undercurrent, how we handle our business, how we handle our disagreements, how we handle our questions, how we handle 
thinking we know what somebody's saying or means versus not really knowing because we haven't talked to them, like how we handle all that. Um, we've got to do good. Why? Because that helps keep people from going sideways, the community of believers. And when, when somebody's sideways and they're, they're, they need to get back, you got to do that by repairing the broken relationships. And so how we handle the break, uh, the break in relationships with God and with other people, how we handle that is absolutely essential to health. I struggle at Antioch. How do we grow that? It, it seems kind of silly, but how do we do better conflict resolution? Um, I struggle with this, that we're too churchy. This is, a big, this is a really big deal to me. I'm a church planter. This means a lot to me. We planted Antioch because we felt like there was people out there that we needed to be able to go and build relationships with and have a community with so that we could tell them about Jesus Christ and that we could help them grow in their relationship with God. And, and Paul, who is a missionary, kind of did the same thing. He went and planted churches everywhere he went, and he said this. He said, uh, I became a Jew to the Jew, a Greek to the Greeks, and a Roman to the Romans. I became all things to all men so that I might save some. And what he's saying is, is if your primary language is English, if I talk to you in Spanish, there's really no benefit to that. Right? I mean, there's no value added to that. It decreases the, the degree to which effective communication is going on. And so Paul adapted his language to the people he was loving on and trying to build a relationship with. It's very much what God did with Jesus. Je Jesus came. It's called the incarnation. He took on flesh, and he was with us, walking around with us, speaking our language so that he came down to our level because he cared enough to, to speak that, that language. And Paul's saying, when I go around, I do the same thing because I care enough about these people to come down to their level and to speak their language so that they don't feel like outsiders and so that I can help them become insiders. And the minute we try to speak Greek to the Jew or Roman to the Greeks or whatever, and we try to speak different languages, we create a barrier, barrier and create separation. Um, a church group, the longer it exists, will develop its own customs, its own language, its own cliches, its own way of doing things, and it will like that. Why? Because it helps us have a group identity, which we like. Why? Because we're, we're a herd creature and we value community. But we will begin to develop our own ethos and, and, and everything else. And, and the more we do that, the more others become outsiders. Does that make sense? I was in Zurich um, two weeks ago. And I had this waitress. It's unbelievable. I've never experienced anything like it in my life. She didn't speak one word of English. I didn't speak one word of whatever. Um, typical American, right? Um, and she got so angry. I mean, she wanted to kill me and then kick over my gravestone. Like, she just, and I, I sat there and I was like, wow, all this because of a communication barrier. <clears throat> when you don't speak the language, when, when there's not a shared language, then there will be no communication and very little fellowship. Does that make sense? We were called to go and find people and to love on them. Jesus said, man, you give me 100 people, 99 of them are kind of taken care of and in the family, Christians already, and one of them's lost. Guess what? I care more about the one. 
You know what I mean? There's this, there's this scent quality about us speaking the language of our culture and trying to, to talk to them. And, and if we get to speaking our own language, pretty soon there's no conversation and then there's very little fellowship and then we become just our own little bubble of churchiness. And we like it. Why? Because it's comfortable and it's ours. And, but it's like I, I lay awake at night. You can talk to the, the guys on staff, the gals on staff. Like I... I I, it drives me crazy when I see churchiness happen because it's like, man, the minute I see that, I'm like, I wouldn't have been here at age 21. Like, I would have bumped into that and been gone. Like, it, it, I wouldn't have been able to have a conversation with that. And I don't want any, I mean, we're four years old. I don't want us to become churchy. Now, here's the thing. There's substance and there's style. Substance is what you talk about. It's content, it's meaning, it's truth, it's theology, Style is how you talk about it. It's your language. Now, the language we need to use is the vernacular of the people. It's, it's how people talk. And as we talk to people in a normal language, we talk about meaningful things. Substance never changes. Style always should be readapted so that it's effective communication. Otherwise, we're, we're doing our own little thing here religiously, and we're not really doing what God's called us to do. I firmly believe that. So I struggle with Antioch. Like how, do we, how, do we, how do we do that? How do we keep it there? How do we affirm and encourage those that are growing in their faith, um, but at the same time not let the church begin to veer off, off course that way? How, how do we keep that intention? I'll throw this in just because I'm already in trouble. I might as well just go for it um, all in one week. Um, I'm not a big fan of prayer meetings. Number one, because group prayer in the Old Testament, to the degree there was group prayer in the Old Testament, looked a lot more like Muslims than like Christians. It looked a lot more like people on their face pleading before God. It, it didn't look like cushy chairs in a circle, pray for the person on your left. Um, so the first problem I have with group prayer is, it, it, to the degree that it happened, it looked a lot different, Okay. Uh, the second reason I have with group prayer is just I have time. I have a time problem. I don't have any. I don't, I don't have any leftover time. And when I'm praying to God late at night, early in the morning, uh, when I'm by myself, when I'm in the car, what I, what I tend to hear is that I need to spend more time having a drink with somebody late at night and a basket of french fries and asking them what's going on in their life and what's going on in their marriage and why they feel the way they do or I need to be spending more time with one of my daughters taking her out one-on-one -on -one, letting her know that daddy loves her and that he thinks she's beautiful. When I'm in prayer, I feel like God's pushing me more to spending time with sinners that need somebody to love on them to encourage him, to affirm him. I don't feel when I'm in my prayer time, God's saying, you need to make time for 10 more prayer meetings. That's how I feel. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be in a prayer meeting. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have prayer meetings. It's just we gotta understand prayer meetings can become about us, feeling like we're doing religious things, or they can be something that fuels, teaches, encourages, affirms. I, I, if you tell me there's someone new to their faith that's learning how to pray and they're gonna be in this prayer meeting, I'll be there in a heartbeat. If you tell me it's just a bunch of Christians checking something off their list, one more prayer meeting, you won't find me within 10 miles. 
I'll be somewhere downtown having a drink, talking to someone and, and trying to get to the heart of things. And when I really want to pray, when I'm really exhausted, when I really need God, you'll find me all by myself. Because that's where I get unbroken time with God, unbroken conversation. Now again, I, should we have prayer meetings? Absolutely. Can prayer meetings become an idol? Absolutely. Um, I, again, I don't know. I, don't, I said something in there to get me in trouble. I don't know what I was saying, but I struggle with something there. I, I, I do. Um, about my life, I feel like Jacob sometimes. Anyone ever feel like Jacob? You got a bunch of mistakes in your past that are catching up to you and you have uncertainty in the future, and you're kind of wrestling with God and saying, God, unless you go before me, um, I can't do this. I mean, you got, you got to get up and go before me. Uh, I got a lot of mistakes, man. You know, when the older your kids get, the more you start dreading, like, man, how am I going to talk to them about these things? They're going to ask questions, and I got to be real, and I got to be honest, but, man, I don't want my mistakes to mess up my kids. I struggle with wanting to protect my kids. Anyone struggle with that? I'm afraid God's going to ask me to give up on my dreams. I have some. I preach that we need to give our life away all the time, and I still think maybe there's a couple dreams that I haven't yet given up to God that he's going to ask me to give up. That scares me. I struggle with being an inadequate dad and husband and son. I used to always shoot for an A plus and things, and then there's sometimes I walk around these days, and I think, man, as long as I can get a C and pass, I, I, you know, that would be good. You know, and I struggle with not being adequate. I struggle with not being an adequate leader, not being good enough, not being all that I could be, not being as much as somebody else. I struggle with not knowing enough. I struggle with time going by too fast. I struggle with um, being tired a lot. I struggle with not feeling like there's enough in here that's like uber good enough for God to love. And when that happens, I begin to struggle with grace and feel like salvation by grace through faith is just awkward because I'm not deserving of it. And so I end up struggling with salvation and I struggle with grace. I struggle with people. I struggle with feeling like people don't know me or understand me. You ever feel like that? Man, that hurts. I struggle with not having enough deep enough friendships. Like Tam and I, we just feel so spread out so often that we, we look at other people and we're like, man, they have that same group of friends that they've been with for like 10 years and we don't feel like we have that. And it's like, how do we do that? We don't have any time. And I struggle with that. Um, I struggle with the future and feeling like, man, having a good retirement's not like, you, you don't be a pastor to have a good, a good retirement and like feeling like, what do I do with that? I struggle with not always understanding the Bible. I struggle with sermons what to say, how to say it, and then how to deal with it when it doesn't come out right, and, and will people still love me? And I struggle with a lot of things. And now I want you to hear me now. This is the whole point of me ranting and, and, and going on. I struggle with a lot of things. And that's why there is no steeple, no church, no church building no pastor, no men's or women's group, no way of doing communion or not doing communion or prayer meeting or not doing prayer meeting, no cliche, no mantra, no missions trip, no anything that is big enough 
to hold me in all my struggles. It's just not there. There's only one thing that's big enough to get me, to love me, to hold me, to keep me, all of me, and that's God. I don't want religion. I want God. And the the degree, religion is a word you can use for Jesus and you can use for the Pharisees that he judged. It's an interesting word that way. And to the degree that religion is here affirming my relationship with God through Jesus Christ and helping me grow in my relationship with God through Jesus Christ, to the degree that that's religion, I'm okay with it. I'm in. The the degree, though, that religion becomes an end in itself and distracts me from my relationship with God and sidetracks me into religiosity, to that degree, I'm out. I don't want it. Paul came and he says, look, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness, and I preached only one thing. I preached Christ and him crucified. That's all I endeavored to know, and it's all I endeavored to share in Christ Christ was everything to Paul saying these people need to know God and as much as I can get myself out of it and the law and tradition and legalism and worship styles and other stupid stuff out of it and let Christ be the thing they look at in their relationship with God, that is all I'm about. And don't let anybody sell you anything even if it's something seemingly good like religion. Don't let anyone ever make anything bigger than God in your life. Nothing is big enough to handle you, to save you, to love you and accept you with all your struggles like God is. Isaiah 64 says this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your, known, your name known to your enemies and to cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. And, in, and since no ancient times, and since ancient times, no one has heard and no ear has perceived No eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right and who remember your ways. Oh God, let that be our prayer. That since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen anyone except for you acts on behalf of those, on behalf of us who wait for you. God, may you be glorified above all things. In Christ's name, amen.